the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The views and opinions expressed in the program are not necessarily those of this radio station or its sponsors and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. You should always consult the appropriate advisor before making any financial decision. All rights reserved. AM 1220 KDOW presents Money 2.0. Money 2.0. Now, shedding light on your portfolio and helping you make it grow. Here's certified financial planner and Money 2.0 host, Chad Burton. Welcome into Money 2.0. I'm your host, Chad Burton, certified financial planner. A couple things real quick. First of all, I always forget to tell this, but starting to... Try, try to tweet more. Say that three times fast. So you can follow me at Chad M. Burton. Go to Facebook. You can uh, check us out there, New Focus Financial Group. Just type that in as a search, but New Focus is one word. And finally, if you want to check out the website, newfocusfinancial.com, this uh, May 9th, two Thursdays away, in Pleasanton, at the Sheraton Pleasanton, Rob Black and I are going to be there, and we're going to be doing a talk on building a retirement portfolio that lasts. It'll include talking about dividend-paying stocks and really getting into the different asset classes and, and how to create the portfolio. It's really 40 and over, trying to accumulate some wealth and uh, how to build it and then how to distribute it. So check that out. You can sign up at chadburton.com or robblack.com. And today we're talking real estate, though. I'm going to cover both investing in real property, investing in real estate through REITs, but I'm also going to cover investing in real estate with other people because I keep getting emails from listeners about, you know, they want to set up a deal with their brother. They want to set up a deal with their cousin, their uncle, their best friend, you know, whoever, a neighbor, who knows, whoever it may be. And there's some good and some potentially really bad and really dangerous issues when it comes to setting up joint ventures. So today I'm bringing in an expert in this field. Joining me now is Jeff Lerman. Jeff Lerman has established pretty much a nationwide reputation as the real estate investor's lawyer. And that means his firm focuses primarily on the unique needs of real estate investors, anything from transactions, disputes, even how it goes into estate planning. You might recognize the last name because I often have Michelle Lerman, who's the estate planning specialist there, on. Jeff's the real estate specialist. Jeff has been president of the Marin County Bar Association, chair of the California State Bar Real Estate Litigation Section, and chair of the Marin County Bar Association Real Property Section. He's lectured at UC Berkeley, USC Law Center, and uh, as Rob Black would say, he's kind of a big deal. And also, realestateinvestorlaw.com is a website you can find him at. So, Jeff, how are you? Thanks for joining us. Terrific, Chad. Thanks for having me on today. So, let's talk about it, because real estate's booming. Everybody's talking about it again. It reminds me of 2006. Yes. And... Uh, you know, it's all based on interest rates at this point. A lot of people got chased out. A lot of investors with cash are looking at property. A lot of friends are pooling money. So what is a joint venture? And actually, this reminds me a little bit more of around 2002 when that last cycle really started to heat up. 
2006 was when everybody was starting to wonder, is the balloon about to pop? So this time we're at right now in this cycle, I know you're a big, uh, 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 you yourself are, are, are not only big on tracking cycles, but you're really good at identifying cycles. And I think that's an important part of this topic is where we are in this really interesting recovery um, because this is what makes joint ventures even more um, topical. Yeah. The joint venture, there's a lot of confusion out there. The, the, the joint venture, that term is thrown around a lot. And uh, in very basic, simple terms, a joint venture really is anytime two or more people get together for any business enterprise, whether it be investing in real estate, starting up a, a, a new business of any kind. And it, it, but there, uh, in California, at least, and uh, we, we do transactions across the country, but let's just talk about California law. Uh, in in um, in California, uh, joint venture. Th- there's not really a, uh, a a joint venture is not necessarily an entity unto itself. The entities out there, you can choose to operate your joint venture either in a LLC, limited liability company, uh, or a corporation, or a limited partnership, or technically a general partnership. Although those really don't make too much sense anymore these days. So I just wanted to make sure on a we. we cleared up the terminology at the, at the beginning. When we're talking about joint ventures, it really doesn't matter what entity the joint venturer's choice to choose to use. We're referring to, we're referring to that concept of a, a joint enterprise. Right, and most common is probably a LLC when it comes to real estate, right? Sure. So no matter what the entity that you choose, there might be other estate planning reasons to choose a different type of entity, whatever it may be. What are the benefits of creating an entity rather than, hey, I want to invest with my neighbor in a deal um, or a business partner, launch something? What's the benefits of, of starting it through an entity? Yeah, the reason that I think anybody listening to this should really be considering the joint venture strategy to building your wealth is because there are so many benefits, even if you can afford to buy real estate on your own. You can get more profits because you can leverage your limited resources, your time, your money, uh, and your efforts through partnering with the right partner. You can get greater safety by working with a partner because you can diversify your risk, uh, uh, spreading it amongst uh, multiple deals and different product types, different geographic areas, different real estate markets, sub-markets, whatever. Uh, you can grow your portfolio faster because, again, you can leverage those resources. You'll have more time to spend doing things other than just business because, again, if it's the right partner, it's the leverage that you get with that other partner's contributions to the joint venture. It's more fun also doing this business. I mean, real estate can be actually a, a fairly isolating uh, enterprise type of investment, you know, and it's, it's good to have somebody that you got good chemistry with because it's, if you're not having fun doing it, then you're you're doing something wrong. I mean, this can be a really fun business if you're doing it with the right person in the right way. So you're missing out on that. What do you see as typically a good combination? In other words, the right two people that that make a good joint venture. Wow, you know that is as open. A, uh, the answers to that question are as uh, numerous as the same uh, 
as the answer to the question, what makes a good marriage? And, and, and a joint venture is a business marriage. Yeah. It could be everything from uh, there. What we see a lot is where one person uh, brings the time, one person brings the money, one person brings the expertise, whatever it is. But you could have two people who um, each complement each other. At the end of the day, I think the single best answer is that whenever I look for a good partnership, a good joint venture, uh, I look for what I call glue. I, I want my clients to be able to answer the question, why do they need each other? Because if the answer to that question is, I don't know, I, I guarantee you that the other partner is asking themselves that question about you mm-hmm. all the time. You know, if they at any point think that they, that, that they don't need you, then the, uh, they're thinking, well, how can I get rid of this person? Right. Yeah, because, I mean, especially, you know, if you've got a situation where one person's good at doing the financial part, the other person's good at estimating if the property is a good deal and actually fixing things that need to be fixed, that might work. But when you get a deal where, where I've seen them go bad is you have two partners. One has the money. The other one has the time and the work, and that will work for a while. And then all of a sudden the person that's doing all the work, they start to feel a grudge, and, and then it ends up being a split up. Exactly, exactly. And the related concept is, Whatever glue you have on day one may not still be as strong, like you just said, uh, maybe a year, two years, three years into it, and so you have to be mindful of that as well. So it's a fluid concept, but it's, it's exactly what you just said. Um, uh, at some point in the relationship, if one person feels that, for whatever reason, that uh, it's, it's out of balance, that is going to show up in some way, shape, or form in that relationship. So let me ask you to talk me into this one, though, because you have something on here that says you, you'll it's there's more time to do other things to create an entity, essentially. I mean, when, when you create an LLC, you've got the annual filing, you've got to you know, kind of keep, keep separate accounting and that type of thing. How does it – how do you sell it to me that it, it gives you more time oh, well, to do other yeah, things? I mean, there is some additional time involved whenever you have a – joint venture in terms of, um, as opposed to doing it on your own, just because, if nothing else, uh, you need to, you have have a partner that you need to to deal with. However, um, if what you have more time to do is, look, if you're trying to build your wealth and you're trying to do it all on your own, even if you can, um, you are, it's going to take you, um, a lot longer, a lot, a lot longer to do that one deal at a time, as opposed if you have a partner who is freeing up your time to do more deals because they're helping out with the work on on each deal. And so, if it's the right, if it's the right partnership, that it should enable you to leverage. There's that word again. It shows up in a lot of different ways to leverage off the other partners' contributions to ultimately generate more profit, not only in terms of dollars and cents, but more value in terms of, again, how you're spending your time, whether it's looking for more deals, more time to spend with your family, more time to spend doing whatever you want. You know, if you're you're doing it all yourself, 
It's uh, it's not as fun. No, I get what you're saying. You're trying to lever- you're trying to find people that have skills or they're better at something than you are, so you can leverage your time. I get that. So when you're tell me a little bit more about how people know they've got that glue or they've they can complement each other. How do you know what, what the best business relationship for you is? Well, uh, that is on on one level, it's a very kind of a common sense thing. I, I think that if I when I sit down with my clients at the beginning of this kind of discussion, I explain this concept to them and I ask them right there, uh, what why do you guys need each other? What does what do you expect each other to bring to this? To this relationship, and that's a very important conversation to have with me. And with I need to understand it first, so that I can document it. But second, uh, part of what I'm doing is to identify issues up front when we are trying to document the deal to make sure that I'm doing my best to minimize the chance that these partners are going to get into a dispute down the road. And so. If I see in the relationship that it does seem out of balance, that's something I'm going to bring up and and encourage them to discuss it, whether it's in front of me or, or on their own. Um, yeah, it's it, you just need it, part of the whole discussion is to understand. And a lot of times, there's you can see from the exchange between the uh, the partners that they haven't fully thought it out or discussed it either, which is a big which is a big concern as well. You know, it's a lot of times they just jump into it. The most right. common thing I see is you have a couple friends who are, or relatives who decide it would be a great idea since they're friends or relatives and they have a good solid basis uh, for the relationship uh, to start doing business together. And they feel mm-hmm. that the friendship or the relationship is enough. That's enough reason. Well, i got to tell you, that will very quickly, the the, the, the joy and the fun aspect of that will very quickly be subordinated uh, to the realities of a business when you have to start, you know, really when money gets involved. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, so let's talk a little bit more about this after the break, too, because you've got joint venture. So you sit down with these people and you say, okay, what type of a deal is this? Is this a joint venture? Is this a lender-borrower situation? Is one an active and one a passive investor? What, let's talk about after the break, um, you know, what's, what's the rest of the things you have to go through? Because every good agreement, in my mind, is being, you know, in the business and dealing with people that have been in business for years, is that every good agreement, it starts off good, just like a marriage starts off good, right? Right. You need to have an exit strategy and, and to find out, you know, outline in the beginning if you want to exit what happens. We'll talk a little bit more about that after the break. If you want to get your calls in there, if you have a real estate question, 800-516-1220. That's 800-516-1220. We're talking with Jeff Lerman, and we'll take a quick break, and we'll be right back. This is Money 2.0 on AM 1220 KDOW. Welcome back into Money 2.0. I'm your host, Chad Burton. You could send me a tweet at Chad M. Burton. You can follow us on Facebook. Let's go to New Focus Financial, New Focus, one word. Today, though, we're talking about real estate. We've got Jeffrey Lerman on the line with me. If you go to realestateinvestorlaw.com, that's where you can find him. He is a an attorney that specializes in real estate, 
setting up partnerships like we're talking about to even about litigation. So let's, Jeff, let's talk about that side of it. So when you get together two people, you find out that they have the glue that you're talking about. They can help each other leverage time. It looks like a good match, but undoubtedly a lot of these end up bad, right? Sure. So how do you put in in the front end? I mean, how do you say, okay, if this thing goes bad, here's the exit strategy, so we're not going to end up in years of litigation? Well, you know, the, the, there's no single exit strategy that can guarantee you won't end up in years of litigation because there are so many ways you can end up in litigation. And so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, cer- certainly um, as part of the dispute resolution process, if your concern is what can we do in the agreement to try to – uh, minimize that expense and, and, and um, uh, to avoid that protracted litigation, we include a dispute resolution paragraph that includes mandatory mediation and then at least if the parties want to do it, go to arbitration as opposed through the courts, uh, especially here in California right now with budget cutbacks, it's taking even longer to get to the courts. So a uh, mandatory dispute resolution uh, paragraph would, would help that process, but you know, as part of setting up the uh, the partnership correctly or the joint venture correctly from the beginning to try to minimize those uh, that litigation, you know, it's talking about as you were saying before the break, deciding what the best business relationship is for you and your partner to work together. Is it mm-hmm. a joint venture where you're both active? Is it a lender borrower? Is it active versus passive? You know, those are some of the issues we talk about. You want to talk about you know. The business philosophies. You talk about exit strategy. You mentioned that. So in real estate, some of the key things, big picture concepts that you want to discuss in any situation is how long am I going to hold this deal? Is it a flip? Is it a buy and sell? Or is it a is it a buy and hold? And are you going to be using a loan? Or are you going to be doing all cash? Um, and then, as we were saying before the break, also who's going to be doing what in the deal? That's so crucial to get really clear as to specifically what each person is bringing. To the deal, mm-hmm. and uh, the control issues are, are another big trigger point for potential disputes. Where they're, especially if you have only two people involved, and especially if they're equal partners, you know, right. you know who's going to decide on some of these big issues? You know, whether to get a loan, cash calls, when to sell, those kinds of issues. And those are typically voting issues, right? So you want to make sure that you outline that, that these are the issues that we have have to vote on. Right, right. So how do you know if if, what are some of the maybe an example that you could give or some issues that there's some warning signs here and rather than let it continue to go bad and end up in a lawsuit, maybe kind of nip it now. What are some of those issues? So one of the biggest warning signs that you're headed for a lawsuit is if the communications break down, and as in a marriage, quite frankly. Um, again, this is really, it's, it's not as stretching it as a metaphor. This is, it is a business marriage. And I see so often that uh, whenever somebody comes in, there's a, a dispute, one of the first things they say is, they've gone dark on me. They won't return my calls. I text them, whatever. They're not communicating with me, and I can't get their attention. i got no other choice but to come to a lawyer so they know I'm serious. So if there's a problem, if you're, if you're in a partnership and you feel like there is a problem, a lot of people clam up because it's awkward, it's difficult, yeah. it's uncomfortable. That's exactly the wrong thing. At that point, you should be communicating and talking it through. Um, if there's no written agreement, I know that sounds basic, but I can't tell you, Chad, how many times these disputes with multi-million dollar disputes 
are situations where there is no written agreement in the first place. It's all yeah. oral handshake. I just ran into a, a person too, and this can even happen as, some, as simple as vacations home, vacation homes where three families will go into a large vacation home together. There's no tenant agreement. They all get older. People die. They don't know what's going on with the estate and who's going to come up to, you know, th- those types of things are ex- important, whether it's a, a family deal or an investment deal. Yeah. Yeah, and the other thing that you mentioned before the break, it's it's when there is an imbalance. If maybe there uh, there's a lack of money, whether because the deal's gone south, or because one of the partners is supposed to put up money and doesn't put up money. If that's and that's one of the single biggest issues that is bringing somebody into my office saying I got a deadbeat partner. They're supposed to be carrying their load. I'm carrying their burden. So you know the, these are all. You know, very obvious warning signs to me. If I see these going on in a yep. relationship, that you know, you guys better sit down quickly and try to resolve this. Yeah, before it gets too expensive. Now, you've got a couple of free reports. People can email you, Jeff at LermanLaw dot com. That's Jeff at LermanLaw dot com. And what are those uh, reports? Yeah, uh, reports on each of these topics. Seventeen steps to setting up a successful joint venture is one which focuses on the front end of the deal. And the other is uh, 12 warning signs. You're headed for a lawsuit with your partner. And they can either send me that email, as you said, or they can go straight to our website and click on the bottom of the page of the homepage, mm-hmm. and you'll see the special reports, and that'll take you to uh, uh, a link that you can uh, just get us, uh, get us right. your information, and we'll get you the reports. All right, thanks a lot, Jeff. Appreciate it. Go to realestateinvestorlaw.com to get those reports or send them an email. We're going to take a quick break. We'll go, we'll get back and continue talking about real estate from the investment side in the market and buying rentals and my rules. You want to get your calls in the area, 800-516-1220. We'll be right back. This is Money 2.0 on AM 1220 KDOW. Welcome back into Money 2.0. I'm your host, Chad Burton, Certified Financial Planner. If you want to get your calls in there, 800-516-1220. That's 800-516-1220. And if you want to check out um, Jeff Lerman's website, go to realestateinvestorlaw.com. And the point of this is is that I'm, I'm having a lot of people, a lot of family members, things like that, that are trying to go in on deals in real estate, pool cash, get positive cash flow, whatever it may be. And from you know almost 20 years in the business, I've seen partnerships go bad. In fact, one of those lame sayings out there is the only ship that doesn't sail is a partnership. That's because they're written poorly. They don't outline who's supposed to do what. People get disappointed. They get angry. And money changes things, especially if you're dealing with your family. Ugh, I've seen money ruin families and just over little things too. So I love real estate. I own real estate. I own stocks. I, I love it all. I love accumulating wealth. That's your goal is too many people get on the mindset of I'm going to accumulate depreciating assets like cars and boats and things like that uh, instead of accumulating appreciating assets. So what are my rules for real estate? When do you start dipping into investing in real estate? Well, first of all, you need to be maxing out your 401k, your Roth IRA, those retirement options before you're doing anything else because nothing's going to beat that. 
Stocks are going to win in, in the long run like they always have. The only way real estate keeps up with stocks is because you can leverage it and have somebody else pay off your asset or that loan for you. So if you have $1 and you put it into the 401k, the entire dollar goes to work. If you have $1, you take it home to invest in real estate, you only got 65 cents left over after taxes. And Roths grow tax-free forever. So get those maxed out first. And then you want to at least have at least one year's worth of income saved up in a regular taxable account. You got your emergency reserves at three to six months and then a year's worth of income and just good large cap, mid cap type index funds. So you can have capital. So you can have flexibility. If you, the reason why I say that is because if you get into rental properties and things like that where you don't have the capital to fix things when they go wrong or pay for a renter if they're not there for three to six months, um, who knows? Maybe you end up, uh, Leasing out your house to a chemistry teacher that ends up getting cancer, and then he has to sell meth to pay for his – oh, wait. That's a movie. That's Breaking Bad. Never mind. But you get what I'm saying. Great show, by the way. I'm finally actually watching Breaking Bad. I know it's been out forever, but there you go. Now, some of the other rules that I would say just the basic concepts of, of realizing whether or not the real estate – property is a good deal or not. The first thing I tell people to do is pretend that you had enough cash to buy the property outright. So if you have enough cash to buy this property outright and you were to rent it out at current market rates and after you paid all of your expenses, including a property manager, including taxes, including insurance, including a certain amount per month for maintenance that you set aside to fix things in the future, you've got to have at least 4% or more positive cash flow if you were to pay it off because you assume that real estate prices on average over a you know 20 to 30 year period they're going to go up with inflation they're really tied to wage inflation and, and real estate's inversely tied to interest rates it's correlated directly with wage inflation because people don't buy real estate they buy a mortgage typically all right so that's your first step but most people aren't going to buy it cash out most of the cash offers that you're seeing now are very very wealthy or uh you know lots of you know, uh, private equity that's that's buying some of these houses. So make sure the next step is is that what if I do have a loan on it? Make sure you can get positive cash flow. If you put twenty to thirty percent down, you pay your property management fees, your taxes, your insurance, your maintenance. That you're still going to have positive cash flow. Never invest for just a tax deduction. I'll talk about this after the break. Get your calls in the air. Eight hundred five one six twelve twenty. That's eight hundred five one six twelve twenty. We'll be right back. This is Money 2.0 on AM 1220 KDOW. Welcome back into Money 2.0. I'm your host, Chad Burns, Certified Financial Planner. If you want to connect with me, Facebook, go to New Focus Financial. New Focus is one word, or at Chad M. Burton. Send me a tweet. And uh, I'll probably tweet out and post also later that the links to Jeff's articles at uh, realestateinvestorlaw.com. But in terms of real estate, and, and is it a good deal? Yes. Real estate is could be a very good way to accumulate wealth because you can use leverage safely in terms of a 15 or a 30-year loan, for example, that offers some tax deductions. And you can have somebody else pay off the asset for you because of rent. So you get leverage and rent. That's how real estate 
That's the only way real estate can keep up with stocks in the long run. But because there's leverage, because you're dealing with other people and having them pay you rent, there's more risks. So you got to be financially ready. And never invest in real estate for just a tax deduction. This was such a huge issue back in kind of the 2002 to 2006 timeframe. Everyone heard that real estate offered this huge tax deduction and the prices always went up. So it didn't matter. It didn't matter if it was negative cash flow. They would still buy the real estate because the tax deduction would save them enough money to make up for the negative cash flow. Well, guess what? What are the deductions out there? Well, typically on your Schedule E on your tax return, you can deduct the interest from the loan, the insurance, the property taxes, and the structure on the property, you could depreciate over 27 and a year, half years. So, for example, if you bought a $500,000 property and the structure itself is 300000 you divide the 300000 by 27 and a half, and you can write off $10,909 per year. So you add that to the interest and all the other stuff, that's a pretty large deduction, but there's rules. You can only take up to 25000 a year in, in losses. And if you start making over $100,000, you start losing 50 cents for every dollar over that amount. So in other words, once you hit $150,000 modified adjusted gross income, you don't get any current deductions. You don't get to take those depreciation and other deductions until you finally sell the property. So those of you out there that are making over that amount, unless you're you know, considered an active, like that's your business, if you're a normal person has a job and, and just invest in rental properties, if your modified adjusted gross income is over 150 grand, you're going to lose the, current, the ability to currently take those deductions. They'll just get carried forward until you sell the property. So keep that in mind. You have to run these scenarios, and you don't use the tax deduction when calculating what your return is on the property. That's just an added benefit. That's all. So – that's when we talk about real estate and investing in, in a good rental property, multifamily, whatever it may be. It's, it's, it's all about positive cash flow, all about positive cash flow and buying assets that are eventually paid off that can kick off a great return when you're in retirement. Great return. It's almost like it's more risk than a bond, obviously, but it's like a bond. It pays you more than a bond once it's paid off. And then it's got inflation protection because the value typically tends to go up with wage inflation. And if we're in any kind of a decent economy in the long, long run, we have wage inflation. Now, <clears throat> let's say you have real estate properties already. Now you have to talk about real estate exposure in your investment portfolio. And a lot of people ask, well, hey, I have two rental properties, so does that make up my real estate exposure and my investment pie chart? And the answer is no. A real estate property is a small business. It's its own entity. It's a part of your net worth, but it's not part of your stock portfolio because you can't push a button and sell your rental property. You can on a real estate investment trust. So real estate inside your portfolio, your investment portfolio, your taxable accounts, your trust accounts, your IRAs and Roths, that's the REITs, real estate investment trusts. And all they are is companies that trade like a stock. So in some of those companies that are out there that are REITs or Simon Properties, there's healthcare REITs out there. There's one specifically called healthcare REIT. There's Avalon Bay, Vernado Realty Trust. These are just public Kimco, uh, Camden. These are just companies on the New York Stock Exchange and other exchanges that they're publicly traded stocks, but all they do is deal with real estate or some type of lending in real estate. And by law, they have to pass on 90% of their net income to their investors and they enjoy not paying that corporate tax level. 
And as an investor, when you own it in a taxable account and you're getting the dividend, not all of it's currently taxable in terms of the dividend. And you typically want to shoot for about 5 to 10% REITs in your overall investment portfolio. Now, I'm actually under that right now because when I go to 10%, it's when interest rates are high and the dividend is high on REITs versus historical levels and interest rates are coming down. That's when you want to overweight in REITs. Now, do you really need to go buy REIT funds anymore? Like RWR is an index fund. Um, do you really need to go buy that? Well, even five or 10 years ago, REITs were a relatively new investment. Now, you know, through since basically 1999, people have been investing in them. And now they're part of a lot of indexes. For example, if you own the S&P 500, 3% in REITs. If you own IJJ, mid-cap value, 12% of that's in REITs. If you own IJK, mid-cap growth, 9% of that's in REITs. U.S. small value iShare is at 8% REITs. U.S. small core iShare is at 8%. Even the EFA fund, the international ETF, 4% REITs. Emerging markets, 2% REITs. So we'll talk about REITs in the portfolio. Coming back after the break, get your calls in the area, 800-516-1220. That's 800-516-1220. This is Money 2.0 on AM 1220 KDOW. Welcome back to Real Estate Investment Trust. First of all, do not ever invest in non-traded REITs. Just Google lawsuits and non-traded REITs and you'll know why. Huge fees up front, lots and lots of disappointed investors. The people that sell them make a huge commission, and you get really, really disappointing results. What about REITs and the rest of the portfolio? First of all, if you're heavy into mid-cap stocks, you probably, or especially mutual funds and index funds, you probably already own a lot of REITs. What you need to do is if you have a lot of, you know, if you have investments over 100000 at least you should be going to Morningstar.com and, and doing a snapshot of your portfolio. So you can see what sectors you are in. And if you don't own much REITs, well, maybe you start to accumulate a little bit in your retirement accounts because that's where you want them. You don't want to pay taxes on the dividends until you need them. But are REITs overvalued? I looked at our portfolios a while ago, and you know what? REITs have done a huge return already, about three years' worth of returns in about nine months. We decided to trim them because you can't really look at REITs in terms of P-E ratios because REITs have certain write-offs and different tax issues which affect the actual E and the P-E ratio. But you can look at price versus EBITDA. It's earnings before taxes, interest, and depreciation. That price per that number is at a 12-year high, about the same level as about 2006. Same with the price to sales, which is really the price of the stock versus the revenue. The price versus the revenue is also at a high, about the same level, if not higher, than 2006. Meanwhile, The yield on these REITs are about a 12-year low. So investors are really hunting for these because they're looking for bond alternatives. So I'd be very careful. If you're going to try to get that 5% exposure that I talked about, do it over time. The price, though, the price of REITs, based on history, just just the pure price, it could go higher versus 2006. But again, those other metrics are a little bit lower. So again, run your portfolio in Morningstar. You own a lot of mid-cap, you may not need to add to it. As I mentioned, even internationally, uh, ETFs, there's REITs that are overseas. If you need exposure, 
look for a global REIT and look for a managed fund where they know that it's not just REITs or real estate investment trusts in the U.S., but it's also overseas. So I think that's attractive. A lot of companies in the U.S. that want to open shop and do business overseas, they don't want to buy the real estate, so they just want to lease it out from other people, other REITs, for example. Um, for example, I think it's like even Home Depot doesn't even own their buildings, if I remember right. They have somebody else, you know, that own it, that property because they wanted to have that capital working to open other stores and things like that, so they'll do long-term leases. Now, what about tax issues when it comes to rental properties and your primary home and doing that kind of thing? Because what about when you move out of your primary residence and then you move somewhere else, you turn the primary residence into a rental property, and you realize that, wow, if I don't sell it in a certain period of time, I don't get that big exclusion. So if you lived in a home for two out of the last five years and you sell it, you get to exclude up to 250000 of gain if you're single or 500000 if you're married. So if you've lived in the property first and it's been your primary residence, it's not that big of a deal. If you've moved out, you could rent it for you know two and a half years as long as you get it sold by the end of the third year, before the end of the third year, and still get that gain. But if you buy a property and it's been a rental property for a long, long time, don't think you can just move into it for two years and get that gain. It's two out of the last five years, but there's a... There's a formula, and I don't have time to get into it, but if you're in that situation, you want to link to a very good, quick explanation of how rental properties work and how you try to swap rental properties for primaries and back and forth and try to get rid of as many taxes as you can. I'll send you the link. You can email me, chad at chadburton.com. That's chad at chadburton.com, and I'll send it to you. Thanks for listening. Please tell a friend about the show. Connect with us on Facebook, newfocusfinancial.com. We'll talk to you on Monday. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.